If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Now, before we get started with the topic today, let me first just share with you a little bit about what's been going on at my household. So, um, gosh, maybe about six or eight weeks ago, we sold our home. We had planned to move into an apartment because we're thinking about maybe leaving the country sometime in the next couple of years. And right now seems like a really good time to sell a home, but not a good time to buy one. So we sold our home. We moved into a lovely apartment that we both really liked. And uh, we just finished getting our art on the walls and getting fully unpacked. And the day before I was supposed to leave for a work trip to Phoenix, um, our home floods. Essentially, a contractor sliced through the water main that turns out was inside the unit and uh, completely and totally floods the apartment. And not only does it flood our apartment, we're running a condo from an individual, um, but it actually flooded the condos on either side of us and below us. It was just raining in the condos below us. It was literally raining in the parking deck. That's how much water came into our new home. And so now we're in this awkward position where we have to pack up and try to salvage our stuff and move again. So we did not have a very long time to find our next home. We're now in a townhome a few blocks away. And uh, this long story is just to kind of explain that for the last six weeks, I've really not been able to batch record podcast episodes with guests. Um, Originally, I just set up the new um, home studio because I typically record this in my home office, the new home studio in the apartment that flooded. And uh, then, of course, when it flooded, we ended up in, frankly, a townhome that's not quite as ideal for um, recording. So I'm working on trying to figure all of that out now. So long story short, the next several episodes are going to be solo episodes. I essentially had to cancel our batch recordings in April and in May. We will be recording again in June. I've got some really great information to share with listeners, and I think you're really going to like the next several episodes. 
So the next few episodes are going to be about program planning. I think a lot of organizations and a lot of individuals, especially at smaller nonprofits, have a great program idea, but they're just not really certain how to make that work as a program plan and then an implementation. And so I'm going to walk folks through a really simple two-page program plan model. And if you can answer all of these questions, then you are probably ready to actually write your program plan and to implement your program. And what's more, if you can answer all of these questions, you probably also have a darn good grant proposal ahead of you. So let's jump right into it and let's start talking about program planning. And I want to do that by sharing with you listeners probably my worst program planning fiasco ever. When I was fresh out of undergraduate school, so we're talking, I think I'm like 22 years old, it's 1994, and, um, and I have a newly minted Bachelor's of Social Work. And I went to Social Work School because I really wanted to tackle the problem of homelessness in the city of Atlanta. And I knew, I just knew that with the great ideas that I had, we could make a real den in homelessness and maybe even end homelessness in the city of Atlanta. And so my first job was at Jewish Family and Career Services, and I'll always be grateful for them. They took a risk on me. You know, again, I had no experience, and they took a risk on me. In that job, I was a half-time case manager and a half-time program coordinator. And the program coordinator, I was not actually running the program. What I was doing, though, was writing grant proposals for that program. And early on in my tenure at JFCS, I had the opportunity to write a supportive housing program grant through the HUD-NOFA process. So I worked on that proposal with both my supervisor in the homeless program at JFCS, as well as a um, former professor. I used to joke she was the only professor that ever gave me a B in both undergraduate and graduate school. Every other professor gave me an A, but she was a tough grader. And uh, I got to be in her class. And so I knew that she was the person that I wanted to go to because she would really critique my proposal as well as really critique my program design and help ensure that we had a strong proposal and a strong design. And so we essentially put together a program with three parts. The first was kind of like an outpatient group or series of groups for people who are substance users. The second component was a family preservation for homeless families. And the third component was some domestic violence intervention. So we put together these three components. And I was super excited about writing this proposal. I actually remember like getting up at 1 a.m. and 2 o'clock in the morning just so I could write the proposal and still have time to see my clients, my homeless clients at the in the program. And so finally we finished the proposal. We sent it into HUD. And, and by the way, these are the olden days. So nothing was submitted electronically. We're talking binders. That's right. We, we essentially UPSed binders up to HUD. And, you know, as I look back on it, I think my supervisors and my former professor and even my executive director probably thought that this was a good opportunity for me to write my first federal grant proposal, but we're not expecting that it would actually get funded. So as you probably know, with most federal funding, we did not hear back immediately. 
And then it was sometime in November or December of that same year, we get a fax from HUD on one of the old-fashioned waxy fax papers that curl up, and it says, Congratulations, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has awarded you a grant of $343,514. That's how impactful that grant was in my head, that to this day, I still remember the exact amount of that three-year grant. So it was also really impactful for the organization. Up to this point, that was the largest single government grant they had ever received and was a little bit of a game changer because ultimately it gave the organization experience not only in writing government grants, really large federal government grants, but also in managing them and really enabled the organization to grow significantly over several years. But now I'm kind of fast forwarding a little bit too much. So again, we got that notice from HUD and November, December, and over the next few months, we worked on putting the program together, hiring staff, making sure we'd finalize the curriculum, doing all of that. And so I still recall the very first day that our new services were supposed to start. We opened the doors expecting, just expecting that we're going to have a few dozen people walk through, and nobody walks through. That's right. No one walked through. So now we're all a little bit fearful and we're like, oh my gosh, we've designed this great program. We've reached out to prospective partners and no one's coming. So we call, we essentially spend that afternoon calling our partners who were supposed to be referring to us and saying, hey, we've opened up. Please make sure you send people tomorrow. We open the doors the next day and guess what? That's right. Nobody showed up again. So at this point, I'm starting to panic. You know, up to this point, I'd felt like, hey, I'm the golden child. I got this money and we're going to do great things. And now I'm thinking, okay, we got this money. And now we might completely and totally fall on our face and fail. And that's going to reflect really poorly on me. And it's not good for the organization. And what's more, it does not make a dent in what I really care about, which is housing and homelessness. And so essentially, we then have to go back to the drawing board. And it's what we should have done, really, to design the program in the first place. Um, So some, some of the things that we did was we actually then went out and kind of had conversations with homeless folks standing in lines at soup kitchens in the mornings and in the afternoons, and had conversations with homeless folks Um, you know, who are waiting to go into a night shelter just to find out what they were looking for, what they needed, and how we could get them into the door and really to access our services. Now, interestingly enough, one of the things that we found is that since our service was starting at 10 o'clock in the morning, a lot of homeless folks um, were just starting to line up for a lunchtime soup kitchen about 10 a.m. So they essentially would have to make a choice of, are we going to get food or are we going to get services? So one of the ways that we realized we had to change our program design is that if we were going to be providing any type of service mid-morning or mid-afternoon, we had to be willing to provide food as well. So then we got some corporate partners to donate food on a regular basis and Guess what? That solved a lot of our problem. That alone, suddenly homeless folks were like, okay, we can come in and we can use your services and we can benefit from your services. Now, we ended up tweaking a number of other things as well to ensure that the program would be successful. But I just use that as one key example that in designing this program, we never actually talked to any homeless people about 
what not only did they need, but if they wanted to access that service, what other services had to be provided so they would be able to. So that is a quick story about how um, we did a rush program design, did not do all of the work that was necessary, and nearly experienced failure as a result of it. So with that cautionary tale, let's start down this road of creating your program design. And this program plan could be for anything. It could be for um, folks who are homeless. It could be an arts or culture program. Um, you know, it could be a program for older adults. So this planning process works regardless of the type of program that you're thinking about starting. So the first thing you want to do is figure out your need and actually put that down into a statement. So what specific need is your program going to address? And so, for example, in the example that I just gave, that little bit of a story, the need that it was going to address was the need for outpatient substance use groups, um, the need for family preservation for homeless families, and the need for some more domestic violence intervention. And so those were the three needs. But so you don't just though outline those needs, you also have to document how you know those needs exist. Now, there are a number of source documents that you can look at when you're trying to figure out whether or not the need exists. So the first, of course, is if you have a strategic plan, have you already documented some or all of that need in your strategic plan? Now, there's also a plethora of government data. You probably have a local regional planning commission that has a lot of data on homelessness, on senior services, and so much more. Now, let me also just take a quick moment and share with listeners that there's a helicopter directly above our home right now. So the sound quality probably just went down a little bit. And gosh, I apologize for that, but we just don't have the sound studio set up yet. Once it's set up, we hopefully won't experience that as we're doing recordings. And again, let me just say, that's also why I've kind of chosen not to have guests on right now. If the sound quality is not going to be great, I'd rather that happen with me than with our guests. But now let's go back to how to make sure that the need actually exists. So we're talking about government data. I'd mentioned regional planning commissions. Um, Let's say you're an art and culture organization. There's probably, if you're in a big city, there's probably an office that manages art and culture programs and initiatives in your city. There's certainly an art and culture initiative department in your state. And all of those entities also gather a lot of important data that you can use. So please make sure you figure out which government departments, whether it's at your city, county, um, state, or federal levels, that you can get some of the data that you need. So something else to think about as you're looking for that data of whether or not need exists. Think about your own client data sets. You know, assuming you've been seeing clients for a few years, that's a pretty rich data set and it will help lay out what some of the other needs might be. Now, another good thing to do, and this is true whether you've been seeing clients for 10 years or you've not even seen your first client yet, is to also see, maybe talk to some of the partner organizations and see if they would be willing to share some of their client-related data in an anonymized form as well. Cannot, I just simply cannot say enough about making sure you mine that client data to figure out what the needs are for the people that you're serving. Now, as part of that, if you already have clients coming in your door, you can actually survey your clients. And if you don't have clients coming in your door, you can survey the community you want to be serving. 
Do not underestimate the power of surveys. They, once again, will help you document needs that you could be filling. And then the final two that I wanna mention, make sure that you do an academic research literature survey. You know, you can often find really great data. It may not pertain to your community, but what it will do is it will, without a doubt, show that your need is not unique and has been experienced elsewhere and that there are successful models out there for meeting and addressing that need. And then of course, the last piece, and this kind of touches back on where we had to go out to soup kitchens and talk to homeless folks, don't forget the anecdotal data. Talk to the communities you're going to serve or the people that you may be serving and ask them what they think. Ask them, hey, what's the need? And then, of course, you have those follow-up conversations as well as you're moving through your program plan. Okay, so once you've identified the need, then you kind of have to have a sense of what program or service are you going to propose. So the need might be great, but your program or service, especially early on, should probably be pretty narrow and pretty focused. Right. So, you know, so as an example, if I had it to do over again, I probably would not have written that three part HUD funding request. I probably only would have done one part. So I probably either would have chosen family preservation or I probably would have chosen substance use groups to help people kind of kick their addiction. So I would have done that because one of the things that we found is doing all three, the staff were much more stretched, our focus was much more stretched, and our marketing and outreach to clients was also just an elastic band that was nearly at the breaking point. And so, again, as you think about your program or your service, your need that you've identified may be very broad, but try to make sure that you narrow it down to something that is almost laser focused. This is the one part of that need we are going to address. Now, in a few years, you might want to add something on, or maybe even just a year or two, you might want to add something on. But start with the very specific. Now, once you have a sense of what program you actually want to offer, now you kind of have to decide, do we want to start a program planning group? And that's a group of individuals, could be staff, could be volunteers, could be board members, could be some combination of all of those who are going to be helping us really plan this program. Now, as I think back on that um, HUD proposal, I had a very small program planning group, right? So I had a former professor from college, and I had my program director, and they were kind of each giving me feedback, and then I was doing a lot of the legwork. Once again, if I had it to do over again, I probably would have pulled in maybe a board member with some subject matter expertise in homelessness. I probably would have pulled in maybe a couple partner organizations who I thought would really be working closely with us in implementing this program and referring clients to us. And then that would have divided the work up. Maybe I would not have had to get up as many times at two o'clock in the morning to write the proposal because other people would be doing some work. But it also would have been bringing in additional perspectives and asking additional questions. One of the reasons why we had no clients come through the door when we first opened on that very first day and on that second day is because we did not have anyone asking enough of those tough questions to really ensure that we had a tight program design and that we had a design that was going to be effective and that was going to work. So personally, I'm a fan of the, of the program planning group. 
And if I were going to start a new program today, I would not dream of trying to start one without first putting together my program planning group. So now, once you get that group together, then you kind of sit around the table, you know, and let me say, they probably are going to want to contribute to um, some of the needs assessment as well, but you share your data on the needs assessment. You ask them where there might be gaps and holes, and then they'll help you fill in on your needs assessment, which means you'll have an even stronger needs assessment. And then you also ask them to help you refine that laser-focused program programming that you thought of. So, you know, essentially kind of what I'm saying is it's really important to go into this process not wed to, okay, I am only going to do family preservation. I am only going to do family preservation. You might need to step into this process being open to, okay, maybe domestic violence intervention is what we need to be doing with our homeless clients. Or maybe um, substance groups are what we need to be doing with our homeless clients. And so, again, be open in that process. But once you and your planning group have finalized the statement of need and also have focused in on that very precise program that you want to offer, now is the time to start working on the logistics. And so that's everything from, um, I'm just going to kind of list these off, staffing, how many people are you going to serve, what staff do you need to do that, what will their roles and responsibilities be, where will you be doing this? So do you need a new facility? Can you do it in your existing facility? Can you maybe use a partner's facility? So think about location. And then of course, you've got all of the logistics that roll into the service and the location. So what time? Are we going to serve refreshments or are we not going to serve refreshments? Are we going to help people with uh, bus passes or are we going to provide some type of a dial-a-ride transportation so folks can get there? You've really got to think through all of those logistics. They are going to be critical, just absolutely critical to making sure that you have an effective program that people want to access. Now, don't forget outreach. It's super important that as part of your program plan, you figure out how you're going to actually reach out to your target client or your target community. And so, you know, in some cases, like, for example, what we found in 1994, our best outreach was when we took our social workers and went out to soup kitchens and, you know, went and hung out in the lines of folks waiting to get into knife shelters. We found that was our best outreach. Obviously, that's not going to be the best outreach for everybody. You know, if you are a new theatrical performance outfit, you probably don't want to be hanging out in the lines of people waiting to get into a playhouse somewhere to talk to them about your own theatrical performance. You probably just don't want to do it. Your partners may not take that well. So again, really think through the outreach, what's appropriate for the demographic groups that you're trying to reach, as well as for the communities that you're trying to reach. So you've heard me talk about partners throughout all of this. You've also really got to think through who are your top partners? What role are they going to play? Do we want a memorandum of understanding or an agreement with each of them in terms of what they're going to do in the relationship, what we're going to do in the relationship, whether or not there's going to be any exchange of money for it? And it's best for you and your prospective partners to iron all of that out before you actually launch your program. After all, it's really easy for a prospective partner to say, yeah, sure, we're going to help you with this. But when you actually put it down on paper, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? That's when people take it really seriously. And it's also when our partner organizations make key decisions of whether or not they have the capacity to partner with us on it. So 
some other things you want to look at. Obviously, you want to look at both your legal compliance as well as regulations. And so, for example, um, you know, if you're going to be serving food, do you need to get any type of license with the health department? Or, for example, if you're going to have a client waiver, do you need to have an attorney, whether you pay, pay that attorney or it's a pro bono attorney, to review that waiver? So that way you feel pretty uh, confident that the waiver actually manages your risk. So make sure that you and your program design team really try to list all of the various regulations that you might need to look into, as well as all of the possible um, ways you might need some legal counsel as you implement this program. It is far better to make sure that you are on the right side of the law early as opposed to have a bad experience, whether because someone from the city shows up and tells you they're going to shut you down or because you get a cease and desist letter from somebody's attorney. It is far better to stay on the right side of the law early than to find your program in some jeopardy because you've not done that research and you've not dotted those I's and crossed those T's. And then the final two things you probably want to be thinking about as you and your program planning group are really putting together the design is what other documentation are you going to need? And so, for example, you know, I've already mentioned um, maybe a client waiver, but, you know, are you going to have uh, any type of case notes? And if so, how are those going to be stored? What are they going to look like? You know, let me go back to the theater group. Are you going to have any type of finance manual or anything like that? A lot of theaters get a lot of cash, and how are you going to actually manage that cash? Well, your finance manual could help you figure that piece out. So make sure you've got all of your documentation in place. That's going to be really critical, especially as you're bringing on staff and as you're starting to serve your first few clients. And then the last thing that your program design team really has to pay close attention to are what are the auxiliary services, those services that maybe you are not planning on providing, but will be really critical for both your program success and your client success. So what are those services? And then who's going to provide them? And what's that relationship going to look like? Part of what you undoubtedly see as we're talking about logistics is that all of these kind of fold over on top of each other. So when we talk about auxiliary services, we're often also talking about partner relationships. And when we're talking about partner relationships, we're also talking often about an MOU that maybe an attorney should review. So don't think of this as, okay, you know, each is its own discrete silo. Every single one of these logistics areas really kind of overlaps with other areas. You're going to do them all at the same time. You're not just going to knock them off a list. Okay, we've done number one. Now we've done number two. If you do it that way, you're going to be doing it in a really inefficient way. Well, I typically like to try to keep the podcast down to about 30 minutes or so. We're currently at, gosh, I think about 25 minutes. So I am just going to start to wrap this up. In our next session, we're going to have some conversations about setting goals, tracking goals, finding that initial funding for your program as well as sustained funding. And we're also going to discuss a few out-of-the-box ideas that I really want you and your program design group to be thinking about as you're implementing the program. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you've not minded the helicopter in the background. I heard a motorcycle go by earlier as well. I have been thrilled to have you with us this week. And I hope that part one of our mini program planning series has helped provide you with some insight that will help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.